Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John chapter 14, verse 23. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us each ears to hear your word, your voice this morning. I pray you'd give us soft and willing hearts to obey what you call us into. And I pray that you would bless my preaching to be useful to your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus ties together loving him with keeping his commandments very closely and very circularly. We hear it three times, actually, in this chapter. Um, in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, and then if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Another slight verbal variation of the same idea. But the idea is that if you love him, you will keep his commandments. And the way you show that you love him is keeping his commandments in a circle of loving affection. The first um, and most significant thing to catch about what Jesus is saying here is that he's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about salvation. Remember where in John's gospel this discourse is taking place. It's the night before he died. He's just initiated his disciples who already believe in him into the sacred mysteries. He's washed their feet. He's given them Holy Communion. And now he's, uh, he's saved this whole body of intimate teaching for this last couple hours of his mortal life before he gives his life as a ransom for them, for us, and for the whole world. When it comes to salvation, the scriptures are very clear. It's not that we loved God, right, but that he loved us. He loved us even when we were opposed to him as enemies. It's not about salvation. It's important to catch, actually, um, I love the little sort of gospel footnote, Judas, not Iscariot, right? And we know from the narrative that Judas actually at this point in the gospel has already left. He's already going to bring the temple guard. So Judas, not Iscariot, who probably is the same author as Jude, the book that we have in the New Testament. Judas's question is, how is it that you will manifest yourself? Right? How is it that we'll see you, but everybody else won't see you? How does that work? And this is what the question, Jesus repeats his earlier teaching as the answer to this question. So it's not, how do I get saved? It's how will you manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? The answer is, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Jesus gives, actually answers the how in a twofold sense. He uh, answers, well, here's how, how you receive the manifestation. But then he also explains, how does that work? How does a manifestation from God work? He answers both versions of how, as we see. So I'm going to take those one at a time. So the first is, um, how do we receive a manifestation of God? We're given a condition, love me and keep my word, Jesus says. Love me and keep my word. This is not a brand new saying to a Jewish, a faithful Jewish person, right? If you read in the Old Testament, many, many of the Old Testament books have some version of the same, especially it's, we're reading through Deuteronomy right now, those of you who keep up with the morning prayer lessons, and every couple chapters it says, love me and keep my commandments. God says that to his people. So when Jesus gives that same direction, he reveals his identification as God. Right? Love me and keep my commandments is what God says to his people. And here Jesus is as God, telling that to his people. But now it's 
not just the commandments of the old covenant, but the commandments he himself has given. And love is the root. A good and, frankly, indicting question a Christian should ask themselves from time to time, do I love Jesus? Do I love him? Love is um, part affection, but the cardinal thing that Jesus says that shows love is keeping his commandments. Am I keeping his commandments? If I'm not, then my love is cold or running cold towards him. And you might say, well, well, which commandments? What is his commandment? Now, you could read through the Gospel of John and kind of distill it for yourself. But very helpfully, the same Gospel author, John, we have his letters. And in his letters, inspired by the Spirit, he actually gathers for us Jesus' teaching. What is his commandment? He spells it out for us very plainly in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. So this is John writing um, to his church. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and love one another. There it is. That's the distillation. And that love one another is that theme we get in John chapter 14 over and over. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and love one another. That's the commandment to obey. So it begins with belief, which I think we still wrongly sometimes think of as something we did once and then just kind of bask in. But belief is a continual present verb to continue to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to continue to trust in him for mercy and for help. Believe in Jesus. That's, that's the first part of the one commandment that Jesus has given us. Believe in him. Um, and one of the ways we show forth our belief in him is by meaning what we pray. That when we pray, Lord, Lord, have mercy upon us. We're not just saying words. We're actually asking, Lord, I still need your mercy. I didn't sort of step into some perfect state where now I don't need mercy anymore. Lord, have mercy on me. I am still a sinner. I'm still in need of a Savior. I want to tell you a story about what this means, sort of meaning what we pray. It doesn't mean like adding emotion, like, Lord, have mercy. You know, it's not emotion. It's just the will, meaning what you say. A story I love, and I probably tell it every three or four years here, so some of you have maybe heard it before. Um, but it's from church history. There was a man named Genesius who lived around the year 300 in one of the seasons when the Roman emperor was um, persecuting Christians empire-wide. Diocletian was the emperor. Um, and Genesius was a Roman. He was not a Christian. And he was an actor. But the theater back then was very rough and unrefined and very mocking. And actually the same arena where they would kill Christians. They would do these sort of weird, gross plays. Um, theater, it was a very low watermark for the life of the theater. Um, so Genesius is this rough pagan actor and Roman hatred for the Christians burned very hot and so what they would do is they would do these mocking skits because they thought Christianity was so outlandish and so they would get these sort of they would be like oh I'm a Christian I'd like to have communion and they would like mock what we hold dear so Genesius is one of these rough actors and he, would, he was mocking so he's in this sort of skit and, and they're just like an hour away from martyring Christians like literally giving them to the wild animals to die because they are Christians. And Genesius, in this sort of mocking skit, he's supposed to come out and say, oh, I would like to be baptized, to like begin the play where he's like pretending to be a Christian. And this man, God actually gives him a vision, and, it, and he's sort of like all of a sudden, like how St. Paul says, you know, I was in the third heaven. He sees this vision, and he sees an angel come down from heaven, and the angel rolls out this big, long scroll that reaches just about to him. 
And on that scroll is written every sin he's ever done in his entire life, from childhood, adolescence, it was things he thought nobody ever would ever know about, just listed there in black and white, all the sins that he's ever done. And, he cut, and the vision vanishes. His next line in the skit is, I'd like to be baptized. But he doesn't say it mocking anymore. Aware of his sin, the Holy Spirit having given him conviction about his sin, he says, I want to be baptized. And the story, the narration of the account says that the Colosseum fell silent. That there was a sense of like, whoa, he just meant what he said. And actually the emperor himself interrupts the silence and says, very good, very good, keep going with the play. And he says, no, I'm, I want to be baptized. And the Diocletian again says, you jokes can go too far, keep going with the mocking, keep going with the play. He says, no, I want to be baptized. And Diocletian says, very well, then you'll die with the Christians. And they take him. He goes with the imprisoned Christians and is martyred that very hour and killed. And gives his life for Christ. Um, but I love what that story says about the difference between meaning what we pray and not meaning what we pray. Right? I'd like to be baptized versus I'd like to be baptized. Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. We pray out of our belief, instantiating our belief. That's the first part of our commandment. The second is to love others. Love, the scripture tells us, is the fulfillment of the law. Right? If, you, if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal from him. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to gossip about her. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to lust against her. Right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we don't need 613 laws of the Old Testament to convict our conscience of guilt. We just need one. Have you loved your neighbor as the Lord has demonstrated love? No. No, I have not. So as law, this, would con- this just would condemn us like all the law does. But that sense of ache of, oh, I have not loved Jesus as I wish that I did. I have not loved others as I'm called to do. That very sense of lack comes from a love placed by the Holy Spirit. Right? It's love that wants to love more. Someone who doesn't love doesn't want to love more. If you feel like, oh, I wish I loved more, that's the love that the Bible says has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The longing to actually love God as he deserves to be loved. The longing to love each other as Christ has demonstrated love for us by giving up his life. The Holy Spirit has shed abroad God's own love in our hearts. And from that place, we recognize, Lord, I do not love well. And that's why we pray, like we just did in that collect at the beginning of the service. Pour into our hearts, right? we're praying to God, pour into our hearts such love for you. See that sort of dyna- that dynamic? That we can't muster love. You can't, I'm going to love more. doesn't work very well with God or with humans, especially in marriage. Praying, God, pour your love into my heart. That's the only way we grow in love. And love has no limits. There is no upper bound, no ceiling. And in this way, it resembles God himself, who is infinite, who is unbounded. That love can always keep growing. It's why heaven will never get boring. Because love, there's no ceiling to love. We'll just continue in this sort of, the thing that comes to mind is sort of the way like a fractal kind of is infinite. Love will just infinitely fractalize into ever deeper riches of love. So as law, it condemns our hearts, but as a calling, it's an invitation to strive to love him more through prayer, 
through obedience, which is prayer, which is love. Right? These things are intentionally woven together in a tight knot. That's the condition that Jesus says. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And his word is to believe and to love others. That's the condition. The result, he says, is the manifestation of God, which he explains a mystery with a deeper mystery. It's often the way with Christian teaching. Oh, the explanation for that is actually even, includes even more sort of mysterious elements than even the initial question. Jesus says that we, and by that he means the Father and the Son, listen to the verse again, and my Father will love him, and we, the Father and himself, will come to him and make our home with him, or our abode with him. We know through this discourse in John 14 that the Holy Spirit is the one that enacts that. So here we get this mysterious revelation of the Trinity, that the, the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Spirit. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings to us the life of the Son and the life of the Father. Initially, when we first come to Christ, in one of the old baptismal rites, the baptizer would say to the person to be baptized, um, to, the, to the person in the tub, impart to him or her the Trinity. The triune God is actually engaged in your life, indwelling your very life through the Holy Spirit. And it's the same thing with our continued relationship with God in this invisible region of the soul. Where is it in the body? We don't know. In this invisible region of the soul. So I want to give close with one image. Um, and an image of the difference between home ownership and residency. Which I, sometimes you, know, you can count on the taxes. It's different state by state. But in some of the states where I've had to do taxes, where I've lived, it's like, okay, how many days of the year did you live in this house? It's like uh, 365. But I guess like if you have different properties, you have to declare where's your majority residence. And so you can own a home, but not stay there, right? I guess if you have multiple homes. This is, I guess, a very rich people metaphor. <laughs> if you own multiple homes. But I want to use this as a picture of our relationship with God. That we are like the picture of the house. When Christ died on the cross, it's like he paid the value for each of us to buy us back. And when you come to faith in him, that's like handing over the deed of the house. And then when you get baptized, that's when all the paperwork is signed and sealed and everything's official. It really does. It, uh, both parties agree this house belongs to God at the moment of baptism. But to what degree does God hang out in this house? How much residency does he occupy during the day, during the year? That's what Jesus is speaking into. He says, we'll come to him and make our abode with him, our home with him. To what degree does God hang out in the home that belongs to him depends on our love and our obedience. The more we exercise love and obedience, the more we pray and mean it, Lord, pour your love into my heart, my love for you. We invite him into deeper and more, more quantity of occupancy. That there is no sort of royal road or fast track to deepening the spiritual life. It's just every day striving to love God and obey him, which also means then loving others and continuing to believe in Jesus. Love and obedience. And this is why... Have you ever wondered why we pray in the Eucharistic prayer that he may dwell in us and we in him? And it's like, doesn't he already dwell in us by his Holy Spirit? Yes, he does. You belong to him. The house is his. 
But his occupancy, the nearness, the manifestation, the sense of his nearness, the sense of his direction, and the sense of giving your life back to him, that grows. The quantity of occupancy grows. How? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Amen.